Actually, earlier today when I was praying, I started thinking again about something that's really been on my mind and heart for this, probably this whole year, this, this season of, of my life and, and our life even as a fellowship, and that is transition. You know, the song says, time is filled with swift transition. Not of earth unmoved can stand. Build your hopes on things eternal and hold to God's unchanging hand. And times of transition are, are by nature uh, unsettling. And I've been through many personal transitions. We, we're, we go through transitions as a people. We've been through many of those too. And it feels like we're in, we're in another one of those times, doesn't it? They're exciting times. And they can be unsettling times at the same time. And, um, you know, this whole year with the, the 50th anniversary of the fellowship and its cause for looking back and reflecting on where we are, it's also cause for looking ahead and saying, Lord, where are we going? And feeling some of the directional words that have been coming to us uh, even in recent days and weeks. And, and um, yeah, the weight of what the Lord has laid upon our shoulders as a people and on you and me as, as individuals. And um, thinking about that and, and thinking back to some of those times in my life, and I have a son getting married here in a few days, so I've been thinking it causes you to reflect when those things happen, because you somehow don't picture those moments uh, in your early days. Um, and, um, but it makes you think back, makes me think back on my own wedding, and I, I told my wife, I don't think it was just a few days ago, that um, I look back and, you know, especially when I gave my daughter away, I thought a lot about what my father-in-law must have felt like giving his daughter to me. Um, and not the me that I am now. As bad as it is, it's not as bad as it was then. <laughs> so the, the me that I was 26 plus years ago uh, was the me that he had to trust his daughter to. And that's a transition. And uh, at the time, I was conscious that that was probably not the easiest thing for him to do, but he did it with such grace, such faith, so eagerly even, seemed to me that it just was amazing to me. And then, you know, as the years went by, I, I think I, I sort of subconsciously attributed that to, well, Brother Blair is just, he, he, could, hear, he could hear from God. He knew he'd heard a confirmation from the Lord. And so he was just basing this on that and doing what was otherwise a stupid, foolish, risky thing to do, to give his daughter to a guy like me. But he'd heard God, and so that kind of settled it. It was kind of black and white for me. And so, you know, that was just kind of all there was to it. But in more later, more recent years, I guess you kind of see more layers to things. I do not claim to see or know what he saw or knew at the time, but I think maybe I have a little more of a glimpse, being a little older myself and going through some of the same processes. And it's like you become aware that it's not just, oh boy, we're, this is really risky, but we're going to have to do it. Um, you become aware that it is in those unsettling leaps of faith that God accomplishes the most amazing things. And really, you could even say that without those times, there are things that would never happen to people. 
I'm talking about good things. The plans that God has for people, they require those times, uh, as difficult as they may be for various parties. And that made me think this morning about uh, the passage where Jesus told his disciples in John 16, I believe, that it is expedient for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, then the helper is not going to come. And, you know, what did he mean by that? You know, I don't want to get out of my depth here, but I don't, I I think it, it was more than just, you know, guys, there's kind of this arbitrary timeline that God has in mind here, and we got to kind of got to work with that. This thing is kind of supposed to go like this, and then this, and then this. All right, so let's do step one. I think it was not that simplistic. I think that at least part of it was he knew that the power they needed to receive to enact his body on the earth, they were not currently in a position where they were going to do what it took to apprehend that power. They were not going to set the stage and create that inviting environment where that spirit could fall on them while he was still there with them. They needed the unsettling of his going away. It was part of the preparation that was going to unlock a greater outpouring of the very presence that was with them in the form of Jesus. Does that make sense to you? I hope I said that clearly. Thank you, Jesus. And you know, the King James uses the word expedient there. Other translations will say, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's for your good. It's for your benefit that I go away. And I mean, talk about a, talk about a risky thing to do. There's people in here who've been discipled for decades. Jesus discipled his 12 followers for three years and then said, I'm leaving. It's up to you guys. Twelve guys. They didn't have the Bible. They were supposed to write the Bible. Okay? I mean, it's just, I don't know if we can completely appreciate what a risky thing God decided to do. Why did he do it that way? And we just think, whew, thank God it was a miracle. The church somehow survived it. But I'm proposing to you that the church didn't just survive it. The church was born because of it. Amen? And, you know, the word expedient, I looked it up in the, in the Latin, or in the dictionary, and it told me the Latin roots. It means to extricate, but it also means to put in order. Isn't that interesting? And the word expedite comes from exactly the same root, same thing. We know expedite means to speed it up. Maybe we could say to hasten the day of the Lord and uh, to, to, make it, to make it more possible for it to happen quicker and sooner and in better order but it means to put in order. And I looked up, well, what is the word in the, in the Greek there? And it's, it's simphero, is the word translated as expedient. Uh, and, and that word literally means, it does mean the benefit and the advantage and the good and all that, but it, it literally means to bring together. 
That's what it means. It's like Jesus is saying to them, it's going to bring you together. You're going to be brought together with the Holy Spirit. You're going to be brought together with one another. This is going to result in oneness among you. And he's telling them this ahead of time, as he says in other forms, so that you, you don't worry when it happens, so that you're not afraid that God intends all of this for your good. And what a time it was for the disciples when he was taken away. It wasn't how they had always pictured it. It didn't unfold. I mean, he told them over and over and over and over again, and somehow they still, they, they got a little lost there for a little while. And um, what a time it was, and, and yet what a time it was when they began to realize this is all in God's plan. <laughs> He's not just helping us survive it. This is the way it's going to happen, you know? And then them, them coming together in that upper room, and uh, Brother Zafrir said it before, you, you know, you, you wonder what was going on there exactly. You know, it says they came together, they were instructed to tarry and wait and all of that, and they're, they're together in the upper room. And it says, now when they were in one mind and one accord, you know, there came a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And, and by the way, people thought they were unhinged when that happened. I just had to put that in there. But, but, you know, they were there for a while. And apparently they were coming together in one mind and one accord. But what they were going through and their common need and their common sense of burden and, and obligation to fulfill the mission they had been left with, it was doing something to them. And it was causing them to reach together until they came into that place of unity that brought the power that exploded the gospel across the world. So I think you get what I'm saying. I'm just saying if we're in a time of transition, whether that's in your own life, something's unsettling you, um, or whether that's just us as a people right now, as we're transitioning generations and locations and all kinds of things, thank you, Jesus. If it's a little bit unsettling, well, let's not lose faith that... God knows what he's doing. This is the very type of thing that can launch us to be the people he's called us to be. I don't believe I've ever looked up that word before, Simfero, until last night. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, just, just a, a slice here. Amen. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And oddly enough, Paul repeats this twice in the book of 1 Corinthians. Over in That's uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and 12. Then over in uh, 10 and 23, he says the same thing. You know, we have a frightening liberty. The world is lifting its restraints, and in a certain way, external restraints are being lifted in a certain way in the church. Everything's lawful, but as we sang all of these first songs, amen, about the love of God, amen, I'll tell you what's going to regulate us from here on out. Do we love God? Do we want to walk as children in the light, like Paul says in Ephesians 5 and 10, and find out what pleases the Lord? 
it's going to be our desire and, and this, this love. And how do, we, how do we find out what pleases the Lord? Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Then you will know what is His good, pleasing will. You know, it's just so easy to do our own will. But God is wanting to deposit in us such a powerful love of Him that even though it's permissible, yeah, here, 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 go, there, there. Amen. God, I want to be regulated by Your love because it's that regulation that is going to soon fare us. It's going to draw us together. It's going to edify the body. God, I'm not looking for what's in it for me. I'm looking for what's in it for the common good. I told some of the young people gathered at my house this week, we are in the midst of five dangerous transitions. Amen. And um, I think Brother Dan has framed that already. But it's true. I think we are as close to an unprecedented victory as we are to unprecedented danger. And my dad would probably laugh at that equation, that construct. Uh, We've said before how somebody once mockingly said, oh, that church is on the brink of collapse. This was about 20 years ago. And my dad said, well, of course it is. We're always on the brink of collapse because you can't be on the brink of the frontier unless you're on the brink of collapse. We're always in that tense place where God, can we take this step? Is this your step to take? Is this your timing? And if we ever get where we don't have that vulnerability, that insecurity apart from Him, we know we're not in His will. Amen. So I was thinking about it, and I told, the, I told some of the youth leaders at my house this week, I said, what are some of the transitions that we're going through right now? We have the largest group of members thrown into the deep end of ministerial responsibility, trying to give birth to their ministry, the largest group in our history, largest season of transition and tension in that regard. We have unprecedented expansion all over the world right now. Fields that we can barely keep up with or are not keeping up with. And fields that are exhausting us as we do our best to meet their needs. We have not just individuals, but congregations joining us and attaching to what God is doing here. We have the largest group of youth coming of age seemingly simultaneously. (laughs) If you weren't here for the Jubilee, then you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you were and you watched the stream coming in here, you do know what I'm talking about. And I, I think that I must have seen that in rehearsal at least twice, but it still surprised me every time. <laughs> that says that I had one kind of construct that reality was bigger than, was breaking. Another fourth challenge is what Brother Dan mentioned. The first generation of our fellowship 
Some of them are going on to be with the Lord. Some of them are already there. Others are in the reductions of life, whether in form of disease or just sloughing off this mortal coil or the change from the doing active role to the wisdom counseling role. These are painful adjustments. They don't happen like that. Those, some of us sitting up here, we have found ourselves and asking questions. Well, Lord, I, I used to do this and I used to be over this area and, and now where, what, what am I supposed to be doing? As we try to transition to give ourselves more to the cultivation of the next leadership. And all of us are in transition. And transition is awful. If you've ever been in a birth, you know I'm not lying. It's awful. Intense pain, fast moving changes, noises that you don't enjoy. And then there's this tidy little term that the midwife uses. This is transition. What? <laughs> this is horrible. Why don't you change it? Change that name. This is horrible. <laughs> but that's, that's what we're in. And there's something about what we're going through that's horrible. And there's something about it, as the Lord just has spoken to us, that's wonderful. It's not just something we allow. It's something that must occur if certain unavoidable calamity would be averted. But when you're in that transition, your heart and your mind start darting, saying, is this supposed to be happening? Why is this happening? What can I do to stop this? Is it supposed to be this intense? Maybe this is the wrong setting. Maybe this is the wrong time. Maybe I'm with the wrong people. Boing, 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 boing. If you don't know your course, if you haven't received a vision from God and the faith to stick to it, you're going to abort the most exciting life-giving process in your life. I remember our first birth. It was about 10.30 that my mom came over. She was our midwife. And my young wife, my, this was our first time to go through this, and we didn't know what to expect. And I don't care what slideshows they show you, you don't know what to expect until you go through it. Just imagine right now that you were the only person on the earth who had ever gone through birth and you were about to go through it. What would that do to you and how differently would you approach each of the changes and events of that process? If there was no grandmother, mother, sister, aunt by the thousands and millions who could turn to you and say, that's normal. you totally lose your mind. My mom has these statements to help modify expectations. And she'll say things like, women are giving birth in grass huts by the millions all over the world. <laughs> and there's some subtle hint there that we have it more cushy and should not complain. <laughs> right, mom? She was very focused and very gracious in that 10.30 p.m. visit when she came over. My wife was in a lot of distress and there was a sense in which you could see the body almost trying to escape the pain physically and positionally. 
And my mom got right in my wife's face and she said, Rebecca, this is normal. It's supposed to be like this. And that's what I want to say to all of us today. This is birth. This is normal. And it's supposed to be like this. She said, she said, if you try to contemplate this crisis and take it all in at once, it's going to overwhelm you. But she told her, just say, I can take anything for 60 seconds and take it 60 seconds at a time. I'm sure my wife still remembers. I wonder if my mom still remembers. But it stuck with me. And uh, I want to say to you who are trying to give birth to your ministry, stop darting your eyes around. Stop saying this wouldn't hurt if I was on a more comfortable chair or this wouldn't hurt if it was an earlier hour of the day and this wouldn't be like this if I was in a different house or in a different place. There's no avoiding this. Jesus likened our conversion to birth. The most exciting thing that happens, the start of new life. And yet by means of a process that is so vulnerable, reducing painful, protracted. If there were any way to avoid it, we would. But we say, for the joy set before us, we endure this, and we just hang on and persevere. And soon, the cry of new life is going to wipe away the memory of this pain. So, we got all these groups, every one of us belonging to one of these groups, and we're in duress. And we need to guard our hearts lest we signal from our own sense of insecurity some notion that God is not in control. We're not claiming that everything is just right or how it should be. But we trust the pillar of fire. We trust the presence of God. We trust the witness of His anointing. We trust the unity of of love that we feel, and we're going to trust that more than the signals and inputs of our pain in the midst of crisis. And if you don't, you're going to look back and regret it. <laughs> you just are. You're going to look back and reproach yourself and say, I see now I should have hung on. Don't do that. Don't be that way. Lean into it. Press into what God has for you. If you're, a, if you're trying to give birth to a ministry, God's asking a sacrifice of you that you've never given. And the sacrifices of yesterday are not enough. And you say, but I'm making an effort. Well, Cain made an effort. That's a great start, but you're not going to get a, an effort reward. You're not going to get a participation trophy. You need to run in such a way as to win the prize. As if failure is every runner except one. And you've got to be that one. Take responsibility. Don't look out. You see, when you're in the middle of crisis, you can look outside and you can start making pot shots. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, consider those who have spoken the word of God to you. And consider the outcome of their faith. And imitate their faith. 
Whenever you're in a crisis, whenever you're in a sacrifice and you're like, I'm not sure if I can do this. I'm not sure if this is even possible. You always want to change the circumstance. You always want to change the nature. You're going to be tempted to look at the people and say, I had the word of God tonight, but they just, their hearts weren't in the right place. Well, it might be true. Don't even worry about that, though. Just focus on you. Just say, Lord, I am here to be your servant. I'm here to make a sacrifice for your glory. And that's all I'm going to worry about until it's done. Or you can say, I brought the right sacrifice, but I'm just afraid, you know, there are some system problems in the church. Well, there might be. But you're in the worst possible place to be analyzing that when you're in the pushing, agonizing travail of trying to give birth to your ministry. So I'm not even going to consider it. You just make the sacrifice with all your heart. I remember my dad asking me, so I heard you were in the prisons last night ministering. How did it go? I said, oh, you know, good. He said, uh, did anybody res respond, give their life to God? I said, no. <laughs> there was one guy I thought he might, but he didn't. And uh, my dad said something to me. He said, you know, son, you're not there for them. You're there for Jesus. He said, the Lord told Ezekiel in chapter 2 of his book, he said, go to a rebellious people. They are a stiff-necked people, and they will not heed anything you say, but go anyway so that they will know that a prophet was among them. And he said, sometimes God just needs a witness. He's not sending you because he's sure they're going to respond. He's sending you because they need to hear his voice and be accountable for their rejection when they do that. So he said, don't, don't get into a mindset that you're trying to do what they need. Sure, that's true to a point. But you're there to do God's business as God's servant. Amen? So hypothetically, you guys could stare at me blankly and nobody could nod and nobody could say amen and everybody could be a bump on a log and you'd make it really hard on me. But it wouldn't change my obligation to speak the word of God to you. I would not close my notes and say, I'm sorry. I, I know I've touched the Lord. I know I've got something to speak. And you could stand up and walk out half of you at a time. And I would still speak it with all my heart. Because I'm not really serving man. I'm trying to serve God. I'm trying to be faithful to his word and will. Thank you, Jesus. So don't, don't start trying to change the whole arrangement of your life and your circumstance, misidentifying the pressure of birth. Go ahead and say to the midwives, is it supposed to be this way? And if they say, oh yeah, absolutely. Somebody said to me, we, we, I met with one of the groups, one of the teams, and they said, this was a lot harder than we were expecting. And I told them, not than we were expecting. It's a lot easier and it's going a lot smoother than we expected. So, well, you don't know what I'm going. Well, actually, tell me and I'll still be saying that because it's bloody hard. That's just a fact. There's no escaping it. And we're going to have to make a complete sacrifice. You know, some of the changes that are occurring right now raises questions. And... Such questions are worth asking, and I encourage you to ask them. But make sure your heart 
is in the right place. Make sure that you're not viewing the world through the lens of your personal pain. Make sure you're not skewing the world through the lens of your birth, your effort to give birth to something. You know, when I say consider those whose, whose conduct you want to imitate, that's very important because we want to get in the crisis and say, God's asking something of me that I can't become until things change. And that's a convenient way to put it, right? But if we look outside of ourselves and say, okay, is there anybody here who's gone through what I've gone through in this circumstance? Oh, whoa, he has, and she has, and he has, and she has, and they have. Well, that's, that's what the Bible tells you to do. You know, when Paul says, those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise, that's not translated or interpreted right most of the time. And the scholars can challenge me on this, but... I've looked at it six ways to Sunday, and it's Sunday, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you the six ways are all wrong. And what he's saying is that you guys claim to have a ministry, but you're judging your ministry against yourself, against your own standards. And what he's saying is you should judge your ministry against us and the standard of what we have done and given. So it could be better rendered, those who make themselves their own measure of success are stupid. Instead, they should measure their sacrifice against those who have gone before. Do you understand? He's not talking about lateral comparison. He's talking about comparing yourself to yourself. He's saying that's a dumb comparison. You need to compare yourself, rather, to those who have made the sacrifice. Can you look around and see men of God whose power in the Word, whose fruit in their lives, whose love and grace in their ministry can be an example to you? If they're in the circumstance that you find so difficult, then you need to challenge and question your assumptions about what the nature of the problem is. And that's really how we need to engage in this change. We don't need to say, nobody's gone through birth before. We need to say, people have given birth in this town, perhaps even in this house, in my family, and it seems impossible to me but I'm going to step out on the bridge of their experience and faith and I'm going to do what they did when they were in my shoes. And once we attain to that, then God can always lead us into greater revelation and clarity. But if you don't watch it, you're just going to start this circumstantial argument where everything, everywhere you go, that's the problem. And everything you're, every setting you're in, that's the problem. But the big change is supposed to happen right here. Not out here, right here. Amen. And a big part of that change happens by believing the word that is believable from those who've gone through it ahead of you. You know, if you look at what God's done in this fellowship over the past 50 years, I would say that every indication suggests that our first generation 
gave themselves completely. They went out not knowing where they were going. They did not wait until they had a full blueprint to start obeying. And they would be the first to admit that because they were a work in progress, a work in process, there were things that fell between the cracks and things that got off kilter at times, but they just kept going based on what God would give. Had they waited in Manhattan and said, Lord, we got a vision, but we're going to wait until it's complete before we step out, we would not be here today. They would not even be there. There would be no us. So we praise God that they were willing to move when the Lord said move, even though the plan was not yet perfect. You think back to the first church, and we have this idealistic view of what it must have been like for them, but I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's biblical even. You know, we, we, we tend to think, well, we, we know that Scripture is the inspired, inerrant, God-breathed Word, right? So we assume that the apostles were inerrant as well. They were not. <laughs> they made a lot of mistakes. And there is a journey, there is a progression in their, in their journey that we can see unfolding. You know, if you think about it, it's somewhat remarkable that after all the Old Testament prophecies and after all the words of Jesus, that Peter, at least 15 years after the ascension of Christ, is still absolutely close to the idea that Gentiles could even come to God. He's sitting on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house, and God has to give him a vision of creepy crawly creatures to jolt him out of his perspective. He did not yet have it. You say, well, then Peter's out of it. Well, not so fast, guys. Peter's human. And this is a work in progress. Trust God. Lean into it. The Lord is still clarifying things, even though Jesus has been up in heaven for 15 years. Now, does that mean that Peter's going to take Jesus' place and start changing things? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means that greater and greater clarity and application is going to unfold as Peter seeks to do the will of God. So then he finds the grace to go to Cornelius' house. And he walks in. And what a risk. You know, we think he's so bold, but God had to give him a vision to even get him off the rooftop. But he goes into Cornelius' house and he starts speaking the Word of God. And he doesn't lean over and say, I told you God said this was going to happen. When they started speaking in tongues and the Gentiles got the Holy Spirit, it says that everybody of the circumcision, that includes Peter, were like, what? <gasps> they were astonished. It wasn't like, I told you this is going to happen. It was, they're going to be saved? So they wrote the inerrant Word of God inspired by the Spirit, but they had their journey. They had their process. And then... Cornelius is still dripping wet and Peter gets a letter. It's like, this is a letter of commendation from the other 11 apostles. They just want to thank you for stepping out in faith. Oh, oh that's wonderful. Honey, did you read this? You know, is that what happened? No. 11 of the 12 apostles think that Peter has just really blown it. They call him on the carpet. If they had carpet. And they're like, why did you do this? And Peter has to spend all of chapter 11 explaining to them that this was God's doing. I ask you, 
Were those 11 apostles out of the spirit, rejected by God, disqualified for their office? No, they were human. They were human. And they were willing to let the Holy Spirit lead them. They were not so foolish as to let things happen without hard questions, but they were not so proud as to ignore the voice of the Spirit when it spoke. Let's be those kind of people. Thank you, Jesus. Let's be those kind of people. It's possible. And some would would argue that even the, the debate in Acts 15, it's quite possible that the Apostle Paul had received a further revelation, not just concerning the Gentiles, as Peter had already received, but that Paul had received a further clarification on the law. Now we are approximately 20 years in from the ascension of Jesus. And it's possible that when Paul asked to speak with Cephas and James, if you look at the flow of how things unfolded there, it's quite possible, I would say it's likely, I think other brothers would agree, that Paul was bringing a clarification to Peter and James, not just saying, this is what I've done, I wanted to make sure it was the same thing you were doing. He is in fact bringing a fuller understanding of the law. It's even more powerful, Brother Howard is saying amen to that, Brother Joel is too. So it is even more powerful that when the debate ensues in Acts 15, Paul is not the starring role. Paul is not in the limelight. Paul is declaring the wonders of what God did among the Gentiles, but those who are bringing and articulating this balance regarding the law are Peter and James, the people who have been praying over and considering what the Apostle Paul has shared with them. So I believe that God has given us great revelation, great patterns, great truth, and we would be fools and judged by God if we neglected it. But I also believe that our first generation would acknowledge that we did a lot of things in motion and that there is time and even a necessity to consider and reconsider our application of these things in exactly the right order and design that God would prescribe. And there is no room for judgment because God did it while we were in motion. God didn't give us a full set of plans so that he would get the glory. And so that we would only survive covered by an enormous amount of love, patience, mercy, and faith. Amen? So I don't think anybody's going to look around and say, we've had no mistakes over the past 50 years. We've had no patterns that got off the rails or no approaches that nearly destroyed us. I think we would be fools and liars to say that. I think, as my dad said, it is the mercy of God that we have made it this far. And it's going to be the mercy and patience of God that's going to see us all the way home. Amen. And if if we are making changes, I submit to you that those changes are not permissible. They are expedient. They are urgently required. And if we do not make them, we will not preside over some tabernacle with a gorgeous memorial in it. We will preside over the collapse that has become the fate of every group that has not continued to follow the pillar of fire all the way to Jerusalem. Far be it from us to remove the ancient landmark. Far be it from us to neglect so great of salvation. 
Far be it from us, but far be it from us to build a tabernacle and lean back on our successes and not say, God, the heavens are still receiving Jesus, so there's something that still needs to be restored. Give us the wisdom. Give us the design. Give us the pattern. Give us the timing. Give us the unity. Give us the faith to go all the way. We need to be careful. I think that more than anything, dialogue is beneficial in the body. But we just need to make sure that our questions and our struggles and our travail is fitted into the narrative of faith and not the narrative of unbelief. Narrative gives truth, gives a sense of truth. Details and facts can be arranged in funny ways to create false narratives. But God gives the story. God gives the trajectory. God gives the vision so that the people won't perish. Make sure that we fit these challenges and questions and prayers into the vision of the Lord. And that we have the right attitude so that we don't start to tear each other apart. I read this passage uh, this week. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before King David for a decision, Absalom would call out to that person. This guy is a creep. And he should have never even been brought back to Jerusalem, but his stupid cousin insisted on it put the words in the mouth of that woman who was pretending to be a prophet until David saw through it and said, you're no prophet, this is Joab, isn't it? And she's like, yeah, uh, it's Joab, I'm sorry. You're like the angel of God. I can't hide anything from you. Well, anyway, he brought him back. And Absalom's like, I only want to talk to the people who've got a problem. There's something inside of all of us that is a rebel and that hates authority. And he's going to have a radar detector to pick up anyone who has a complaint that requires a decision. And we're going to try to make alliances or just, oh, there's one. And this is the kind of attitude that can destroy the church. And we won't mean to, but it'll just happen because we're not, we're not seeing the bigger picture and we're not keeping our hearts in the right place. So, for example... Somebody from the first generation, I appeal to you as fathers and mothers, but they can have a legitimate concern about a legitimate thing that needs to change in the church. But be careful how you frame it. Now, back in my day, we would have never tolerated that, but hmm, things have changed. You do that, and I know it's well-intentioned. But you are sending a signal that is really just coming from your pain. You're struggling to know how to adjust to the new role that God has given you, which is actually an elevated role. But you're struggling to know that. And you're struggling with the change of your role. And so you kind of project that. And people are like, oh, so things have changed. So I wonder if what's being told to me is of God. Because... This isn't how it was back in the revered first generation. Well, first of all, if things ever stop changing to be more like the Lord, then we are dead in our trespasses. So 
that's not the issue at all. But even in phrasing it like that, I think some feel the Lord quickening to your heart the honor and the care that needs to go into how we communicate ourselves, lest the lens of our personal struggle start to skew the vision, the narrative, the story of where we're going. Because nobody is more trustworthy in this congregation than the first generation who gave everything. We would have nothing without you. We honor you. We love you. And we are 100% united. The leadership of this church is completely united. But by the same token, let us answer the questions. Let us learn from you. Let us make the adjustments. But let us not set in motion narratives that start undermining our unity and the vision and purpose that God has given us. And if the young, if the, my generation, if you're pressing into giving birth to your ministry and you make these remarks that disparage the system or how big we are or how this and how that, I submit to you in the fear of God, you are hiding from the responsibility that God is calling you to. There are people who have sat in your exact position and they have come through to the place that you aspire to. So all of those reasons why it can't work are not reasons, they're excuses. Don't go there. And the third generation, it can be discouraging working with people who are stubborn, who do not want to change. You need to remember that you are not their savior. You are not Jesus. You are simply there to give what he has given. Give it to them as he has given it to you. And whether they make it or not is not your responsibility. You're not the one who's going to see them to heaven. God is. You don't need to say, why is this so hard? You need to hear the midwife stare in your face and say, it's supposed to be this hard. This is normal. You see, perception without wisdom tears the church apart. Perception is not what we need. We need wisdom. Categorization, as Brother Howard said to us, that leads to dismissal. That doesn't lead to grace. Let your words be seasoned with grace as with salt. Let your words bring grace to the hearer. Take responsibility. I'm going to hurt myself now since I've stepped on toes. I'm going to step on my own. I remember going through this crucible, and that's what it is. And I had learned to minister. I had learned to, to deliver the Word of God, and I did it in a smaller context. I found it easier to preach in penitentiaries full of maximum security inmates than to this congregation. I, I guess that's stepping on y'all's toes again. But it was hard. It was hard. To those maximum security inmates, I could get up and just say it like it was. But to those who had given birth to me in the kingdom of God, I had to find a grace that I didn't have. I had to find a humility that I didn't have. I had to find a wisdom that I didn't have, a patience that I didn't have. Amen? And I resented that. And it was, it was difficult. It was very difficult. And I remember my dad putting the pressure on me and saying, you know, son, that's not going to do. You're going to break through. You're going to learn to minister the Word of God in the setting of this church. 
And you think it's hard in your group. I want you to picture Brother Blair sitting right back there. And, and all these other brothers sitting out here and trying to minister. Um, I don't feel sorry for you. <laughs> Not even a little bit. <laughs> it's very hard. It was very hard. And, and it was like there was no safe place for my flesh. Mondays were a day I relished. <laughs> I think it was because of their position in the week. But it was a particular Monday when Rebecca and I were driving into town to run some errands and, and we got a call from my dad. And uh, Mondays were sweet because the burden of Sunday was passed and I had survived intact. And my dad says, so where are you going? I said, oh, we're heading into town to run some errands. He said, uh, your mother and I have been talking, uh-oh, <laughs> and we've just been discussing how you're going to have to get over this hump. And I, I knew the hump that he was talking about. I would come to meetings hoping that I wouldn't have to share. And if, and if I got by without having to share, I would feel very joyful inside. Because who likes giving a sacrifice after all, right? And if you're going to give it, make sure you give it on your terms. Oh, wait a minute. That wouldn't be a sacrifice then. That would be vegetables like Cain. But that was what my flesh inclined me to. And he says, we're going to have to get over this hump, you know. And he said, I, I feel like the Lord is telling me to have you bring the main word in every Sunday meeting for the next six weeks. My Monday was ruined. <laughs> All of my weeks for the next six weeks were ruined. But you know, it was an incredible grace to me because it just said to me, you are not going to point outside. You are going to get over this. It's right here that the problem and the solution lies. And I appeal to you from my own experience from the fruit of ministers all around you, you need to face that this is your crucible and there's no easy out. This is your salvation. Don't resent it. Don't bark at it. Don't blame it. Press into it and hear the voice of God and see the face of Jesus saying, it's supposed to be this hard. You can do it. I remember in that birth, hearing the midwives tell my wife, press into the pain. My mom actually said, right where it hurts. Amen. And that's what I feel like God is saying to us. Press into the pain. Guard your heart. Don't get caught up in the devil's narratives. I think the first poem I ever wrote, and it was so terrible that I'm glad I lost it. Now, in retrospect, I can pretend that it was better than it was even. But I wrote it after watching a chick hatch out of an egg. And uh, I remember my whole childhood being told, no, 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 no. Don't, don't touch it. Don't, don't touch it. Don't help it. Same thing with a butterfly from a chrysalis. Don't you dare touch it. Don't touch it. That chick... Something incredible is happening. The very environment that gave it, gave it life is in the end destroyed by the growth of that life. As it grows to be what it's supposed to be, it has to lose that environment. And if you've ever watched it, if you've ever watched a chick or a, or a butterfly, the temptation to just... Crack it open. You see them in pain. You see the struggle. 
You see the feebleness, that little... Amen. And I feel sometimes like that's how God is toward us. And we're inside saying, God, please work a miracle. Deliver me of this shell. And God is saying, no, you're going to chip your way out of this shell. And if I do it for you, you're going to bleed to death. You're going to do it. One sacrifice, one effort, one small movement at a time. You're going to get out of this place. And that's what it's going to be like when we're birthed into the kingdom of God. That's what it was like when you received the Holy Spirit. And that's what it's going to be like when you come into your ministry. And that's what it's like when a church comes into the next expression, the next phase of what God's called them to be. We can't be interventionists. Right, Mom? Amen. We can't be interventionists. That's, that's what she told us in modern obstetrics. Interventionism has taken over so that instead of being the course of last resort, it's the course of first resort. And there's something that's supposed to happen in that baby's lungs, in that, the whole of the mother and the baby's life that, that, is, that is supposed to go through the hardship. Something is squeezed from the inside of that baby that needs to be squeezed out. Something occurs inside that butterfly. He won't learn to fly. Brother Nathan reminded me, with just one flick of a finger to help that butterfly, and that whole thing, the butterfly falls apart. It's very fragile. Birth is a scary time. We have obstetricians here, and Dr. Dickey as well, midwives. Isn't it one of the most vulnerable times in your life to infection? When you're in the middle of the birth, you are vulnerable to infection. And if you're feeling that vulnerability to the infections of fear or the infections of accusation or the infections of judgment, the infections of doubt, of competition, God knows you're there. Just press on through and let's get this baby out and you're going to be a lot safer. Don't get an infection in the middle of the birth. My dad said something in the 25th interview. He said, you know, your dreams will cost you something. And he said, no, they will cost you everything. Everything but your dreams. And I would add, they're going to cost you everything that ultimately prevents your dream from coming true. That's what you're going to cost. That's what you're going to pay is the things that keep the dream from coming true. We're only going to be left with one story at the end. God, you did it. God, we're your people. God, we were part of a miracle. To the only one who's worthy to receive the honor and the glory. To him be glory and honor and praise forever. That's going to be our story. Or it's going to be the story of all the other human efforts that ended in rivalry, fear, competition, bitterness, blah, blah, blah. I know the story I want. <laughs> I read this passage this morning also from 2 Samuel just a few chapters earlier. You know, Joab and Abishai and those, those guys, they were David's nephews. They were the sons of his 
of his uh, sister, Zariah. So sons of Zariah, they were his nephews. <clears throat> and uh, it's interesting that in all of those exchanges, there's a familial element. We think of Joab kind of as a standalone man, but he was David's nephew. <laughs> and uh, there was some kind of, uncle, come on, I know what's supposed to happen here. And it's interesting also that they're never called the sons of their father. They're called the sons of their mother, which is the only instance in Scripture where that's the case. And they're usually only called that when they're really misbehaving. And it makes you wonder if Zariah was not someone um, plagued by some measure of anxiety or impetuosity. It's perhaps speculation, but it's at least a possibility. Uh, I said something this week to somebody, <clears throat> and uh, I think it was Judah, but I can't remember. Yeah, it was Judah. Um, but I said something about the angst that I feel people are feeling these days. And he said, the what? Not like he is prone to chew. I love Judah. And I said, angst. And, and I said, look it up. And this is what the word means. <clears throat> I think Zariah might have been plagued by this. But anyway, it says, <clears throat> a feeling of deep anxiety or dread. Typically an unfocused one about the human condition or the state of the world in general. Adolescent anxiety. Deliver us of angst, Lord. Be anxious for nothing, but cast your cares upon Him. Be anxious for nothing, but let your prayers and petitions be heard with what? A narrative, an attitude of thanksgiving and gratitude. God, you're at work. Like never before, this kingdom is expanding. Like never before, men and women are stepping up to fill their places. Like never before, there are new congregations springing up around the world. Like never before, the truth is going forth in a day of famine. God, help me to be part of the right narrative. But anyway, the sons of Zariah, this is one of their better days. They were in a battle. And um, David had appointed Joab over the army. And... Uh, the Arameans and the Ammonites were coming against him. It says, when Joab saw the battle lines before him and behind him, he selected some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. And he placed the rest of the forces under the command of his brother Abishai, who arrayed them against the Ammonites. This is powerful to me because there's nobody more jealous or competitive in all the Bible than Joab. He dies, he's put to death because of it by his cousin, Solomon. Amen. And it's, it's a hallmark of his life. But it says that when he saw the battle lines before him and behind him, he split the army and put half of it under the control of his brother. And this is a principle that's pretty powerful. When you know your enemy and the power and threat of the devil's plan, you're going to be willing to work with your brothers and split up the forces where they're going to be most effective. That's what I got out of it. Joab said to Abishai, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you will come to my rescue. And if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to your rescue. The next words, be strong. And let us fight bravely for our people 
and for the cities of our God. May Yahweh do what is right in his sight. So Joab and his troops advanced to fight the Arameans, but they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Arameans had fled, they too fled from before Abishai, and they entered the city. So Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came into Jerusalem. (laughs) I don't know, the whole thing feels like a parable and a promise to me. We're going to have to divide and conquer. We're going to have to find the faith to trust each other, to fill the places on the wall that God has called us to fill. We're going to have to lean into it, brothers and sisters. There's no safe way to do this. If it could be safe, then it wouldn't require faith. It's terribly risky. And none of us are perfect. We're going to get things wrong. Sometimes we're just going to get it slow, like the 11 apostles. Sometimes God's going to have to hit us upside the head or even rebuke us for hypocrisy like He did Peter. But if we keep ourselves in the bigger picture, in the story, in the narrative, in the vision, in the promise, in the glory that God has destined, we're going to make it all the way. Thank you, Jesus. And like Brother Dan ministered, we're going to see that what we thought were big, scary changes were actually salvation in disguise. Thank you, Jesus. And I charge all of us, if God is sending us, taking us, or if you're called to be here, keep this attitude before you. Be not like Absalom. Adopt the attitude of Joab and Abishai in this circumstance.